on episode 39 of the ElfQuest Show podcast, an interview with Wendy and Richard Peeney one year after the conclusion of the final quest. Welcome to the ElfQuest Show, the internet's only fan-made podcast series dedicated to the award-winning epic fantasy series ElfQuest, created by Wendy and Richard Peeney. My name is David Mizajewski, also known as my elf self Thornbreak, and I've been an ElfQuest fan for over 30 years. So join me as we explore the adventures of the Wolf Riders and all of their allies and enemies on the world of Two Moons and beyond. everyone. This is episode 39 of the ElfQuest Show podcast. I'm recording on February 28th, 2019, which is the 41st anniversary of the very first appearance of ElfQuest. It's also the one-year anniversary of the release of the final issue of The Final Quest and the final part of Cutter's Hero's Journey that it took Wendy and Richard Peeney 40 years to tell really exciting anniversary. And so on this episode, I have a very special interview for you guys. I interviewed Wendy and Richard themselves one year later after the release of the final quest and the end of Cutter's Hero's Journey. The Peenies have had a year to listen to all of our reactions to the end of the final quest And to process that, they've been on the road for almost the entirety of this past year doing public appearances on the 40 Years of Pointed Ears publicity tour. And so I caught up with them to decompress a little bit and hear their thoughts on our reactions to the final quest and their reactions to finally having the story be completely told. So without further ado, here's Wendy and Richard. Welcome back to the podcast, you guys. I'm so excited to finally be able to do this interview with you. We've been talking about it for a year, and originally it was meant to be sort of, you've completed the final quest, how do you feel? Well, now it's going to be a little bit more of, you completed the final quest a year ago, and how do you feel? But actually, uh, I think that's actually a better question, better place for us to start, because I'm sure you had very raw feelings and emotions when you finished. Yeah you've had a year for it to settle in. So that's my first question. I want to hear from you how it feels to have completed not just the final quest, but the 40-year telling of Cutter's hero's journey over the course of ElfQuest. How does it feel now that you've had a year for it to sink in? Well, it has been a year, David. So could you do us a favor and and remind me, what is this final quest you're talking about? Are you truly a wolf rider? Have you forgotten already all of the blood, sweat, and tears that you guys put into this thing? (laughs) Well, I will will stick my toe in here and say that personally, I feel considerably more settled than I did, um, you know, come the end of January last year. It, we were still just processing that our, our year of celebration and touring had begun and we had finished it and we were, you know, still receiving tons of reactions to 
the ending of the quest and doing interviews and and it was all it was all a little bit overwhelming and uh i remember you know feeling quite electrified maybe maybe somewhat stressed i, th I personally I, I feel a lot more settled about it now and uh very very happy with uh with how it all turned out and we had an amazing year with the tour and uh, amazing experiences with fans literally internationally and so um it's really been great and i do want to talk um i, I definitely want to dive into the fan reaction and europe but i want to hear mm -hmm. from richard first um same question richard like what does it feel like for you one year later now well, that it's all done it's it's not so easy as simply to say one year later because maybe it was different for Wendy than it was for me because while we're both working on Final Quest, you know, we were both working the whole time, um, she finished her, the artwork and everything else, and we wrapped up the script sometime in mid-December of 2017. And the issue was not going to appear on the stands for two and a half months. So there was that ending. But then it went to Dark Horse, and Dark Horse, their whole production department, the editorial department, the letterer, back and forth for another at least, what, several weeks? So that was ongoing, even though the work of creating the book, the issue, was done. And then there was the preparation for its release at the end of February, which we were going to be a part of because Dark Horse had set up a signing uh, in Portland, Oregon. And then the next day we were going to uh, Emerald City Con up in uh, Seattle, Washington for a big celebration. First big show after the release of the... So it was a, a kind of a stepwise process, at least as I That's remember true. the feeling of it. That's true. And... and um, once the year got into gear, then it was the, Wendy and I were going here and going there and going to France and going to Chicago and going to San Diego. And it was a roller coaster. But it was a well-defined roller coaster in that it was 2018. It was the anniversary year. And our last show was, I think, mid-November in Las Vegas. And I can remember when that was done, feeling a oh my God, we're there. You know, the rest of the year was, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right, right. Once that was done, we got there and we could finally just say, we don't have anything to do. Well, for me, the best part about Las Vegas was that we decided to celebrate our Thanksgiving there because it was pretty close to Thanksgiving. And we went to a steakhouse at the Mirage and was it the ma actual manager or the junior manager or somebody like that was out front? And he, re and he recognized... What? No, there's a story here. Okay, you, I, I, I will let you tell it. Do you tell? No, because you're jumping ahead. We were, we were shagged out. I mean, it was a, a heck of a show. And as Wendy said, we wanted to celebrate Thanksgiving early one, to avoid the Thanksgiving rush and, and all of the travel involved. Uh, and two, we just wanted some 
time to decompress. So and three, it was Las Vegas. Who doesn't want Vegas? Crying out loud! Who doesn't want (laughs) Thanksgiving in Las Vegas? Um, The turkey, but um, (laughs) you know, we had we had gone to some nice restaurants already, um, but by the time we were ready for this meal. We were tired. We did not want to do any big walking. So the hotel where we were, the Mirage was right next door. And they have a big uh, uh, area where there are casinos and restaurants and so on. We went in there, and the first restaurant we saw was a steakhouse. But there was some, eh, I don't know, it doesn't feel right. We kept on walking. There was a sushi place, but that was jam-packed. There was one other, and by this time, I was getting a little bit mm, frayed around the edges. So I told, I, I told him to sit and wait, and I ran back, and I asked the, the guy uh, at, the steakhouse. at the steakhouse if they could get us in right away, or would it be a, a long wait? Because I could tell Richard was getting a little frazzled. <laughs> so and, she came back. And uh, we can get right in. Yeah. Now, we went back there. I was wearing my 40 years pointed ears t-shirt. And the guy who was the floor manager for that night recognized it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, which is why he got us right in, and uh, we got great seats, and we had a great dinner, and we were treated very uh, with a lot of attention. And uh, I drew him, uh, you know, a picture of Cutter, uh, and and uh, he didn't he post a picture of it, or he he told I, he told his coworkers and posted yeah, or something he, like he told everybody there we had to find a blank sheet of paper and the only blank sheet of paper we could find was the back of a menu <laughs> so we destroyed a menu so well, uh, i mean you know what i think um <laughs> i don't think he's going to complain about it uh, that's fantastic i actually hadn't heard that story yet and well, um, that, that that just goes to prove you find ElfQuest fans everywhere in the least expected places i believe it i believe it well you know that's that's exactly why I wanted to ask that question because Richard, what you said was kind of what I suspected that you, you really didn't get a closure when you put the final, you know, words on the paper. Um, and cause you hit the ground running and you ran around the, the, the country and the yes. world for a year. Yes. It, it only came to a rolling stop after November. And so it's been now not even what, two, three full months. Mm -hmm. But for myself, the sense of uh, buoyancy, of not having anything on my shoulders, no deadline, no no commitments to travel other than for pleasure, uh, nothing to organize with regard to PR, none of that stuff for for the last couple of months. And it's been a little slice of heaven. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's good to hear. You guys have certainly earned, you know, any bit of quote unquote time off that you are um, you are willing to take. So, well, here's the thing: we don't want to mislead you. There's an awful lot of stuff that's going on that we can't talk about, and we've been busy. All right, so all right. You realize that it, this is dangling right in front of me, you know. <laughs> 
every time we gave the ElfQuest slideshow, and it was, what, half a dozen times over the course of the year, we always ended it with, but wait, there's more, because we've not made a secret that there are more stories to tell. We are talking with people, talented people and, and, and production people. And that is starting to think about considering the process of mulling over the beginning of ramping up. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so for the next 40 years. <laughs> oh, bite your tongue, darling. <laughs> um, no, that's honestly extremely exciting. Um, and I think what everyone out there in ElfQuest fandom has been secretly hoping for but not daring to wish that there might be something on the horizon, you know, it sounds like perhaps, I don't know, maybe not, uh, maybe not further down the line, maybe sooner down the line. So that would be, you know, pretty, pretty awesome. Sooner rather than later. Yeah. Yes. Um, And I'm not even going to bother to ask you for any clues or hints (laughs) because I know I will get none. And if you all could see Richard's face, it is in full agreement with that statement. So, <laughs> all right. So, so you mentioned um, a couple things that I wanted to talk about. One being the the big forty years of pointed ears tour appearance tour that you guys did, where you traveled the country. You just shared a little bit about Vegas. Um, so, I wanted again just to get your uh, your how that made you feel and what that experience was like, and related to that is. How did the fan reaction to the conclusion of the final quest and the the, the hero's journey, the forty years of of Cutter's tale, how did that make you feel? Well, the, those are two separate questions because when we did when we did our tour, of, particularly uh, in France, it had not come out yet and would not be out for. Um, another month and That's a half. right, because that was the first stop yeah. on the tour, and it was in February before, yes. or January before the final issue came out. Okay, right. So, right. The, so none of the fans knew how it was going to end. So uh, all of the re- reactions we got were based on everything they knew of Final Quest up to the last issue. But that, that was only for the stop in France at the Angoulême Comic Festival, yeah. because... Our very next stop was Emerald City, the very day after the issue came out. Yeah. So every every appearance after that, from then on, people had the, the book in their hot little hands, or mostly they did. I mean, even now, a year later, there are some people who have not yet read it, and that's that's kind of like really amazing and amusing and fun. <laughs> but but going back to uh, the begin the first uh, part of our tour, which was in France for Angoulême, the the massive comics festival in a thousand year old medieval town, which is a you know an experience in and of itself that's very hard to describe. Um, our our French publishers Snorglu brought us over and they hosted us with such kindness and and such attention to what needed to be done and and uh, we were treated so beautifully and we just loved the European fans they came from all over we were amazed we didn't realize that Elfquist had so many European fans 
and uh, they, you know they came from 400, 500 miles away to to see us at Angoulême in Brussels in Marseille. What was what was our other stop? Paris. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. And uh, and the experience was just amazing. Uh, European fans are among the kindest, most polite, most um, humanizing. I mean, the, I guess they are used to talking to professionals, so they don't they don't you know do the bow and scrape thing. They 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 treat you like a human being, but with great respect and great politeness. And it was it was such a lovely experience well one of one of the uh kind of uh delightful things that several of them said afterwards and um this this could be a two-edged sword but uh, a lot of them said that uh they came and stayed the entire two or three hour time that we were in any given location and they just kept talking and asking questions and we would answer the questions and several of them commented and said you know it was just like wendy and richard were in our house for lunch <laughs> yeah That's great. sitting around the it, living room it was it was that comfortable yeah and um that's really a different kind of vibe than being in a huge hall. I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just very different. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a huge exhibit hall like Chicago or San Diego, where it's a football field sized area full of hubbub and noise and activity. These were smaller venues and a lot more intimate. Right, right. Were there any other standouts um, on the tour other than, you know, the experience in Europe or, or the end in, in Vegas? Anything that comes to mind that was just really a phenomenal an experience, oh, a my comment, a costume that, you know, you saw? Oh, well, you know, the list is endless. I would say in, in, in France, the, the food, the <laughs> you know, uh, the companionship, our, our friends at Snorglu are, are just... Um, uh, amazing people and uh, the, their respect for ElfQuest and their love for ElfQuest is so high and, and they are doing such a beautiful job with the reprints and the recoloring of the covers. Uh, you, we really can't say enough about it and we know that American fans here are um, very impressed with the work that they're doing. Um, so what stuck in our minds from France was that was the friendliness and kindness of uh, the people who were our hosts and and the fans and uh, just seeing the beautiful countryside i mean marseille i'll never forget marseille although brussels was amazing too no i'll never forget any of it let me just lump it all in you know um i remember i remember the premiere uh you know when when the issue was released in portland and uh you know, standing around on a cold, rainy night in the comic in the comic store, it's um, uh, things from another world, right? Yep. And there was about two to about two hundred people, despite the rain, showed up. So we had all these wet fans, and some of them in costumes. <laughs> and the floor, I remember, was all damp and dripping. And you know, it was, <laughs> you know, it was it was quite the. Uh, Comradely experience. We were all suffering from the rain and the cold, but at the same time, we were all very excited because this was the release, and not very many people had read the final 
issue at that point, just a very few, and some of them were crying, and and but they couldn't talk about it because so many of them that were there had not read it that, and and, and some of them were reading it while they were standing in line to talk to us, so that you know they they would get up to us having just finished it, and 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 would be like. Just kind of. Boo, 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 boo. <laughs> it's what the it's what the word verklempt was verklempt. coined for. Yes. Um, so that's what I remember about that. Richard, do you have anything to add? Well, here's the thing: if you're going to ask about the entire year, then probably every show had some amazing high point, and yes. you you and Ryan were known for lengthy podcasts <laughs> we could blow that record out of the water you, you could. but i mean and, talking about high points i think you should talk about san diego because well, talk about high points well uh yeah uh where do i begin san diego of course is the ne plus ultra of american comic expos and uh, we were slated to go. San Diego had to be a stop on the 40-year tour, of course, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it's the biggest show. Two, we will go where Dark Horse has a big setup, like San Diego and New York, because we want to do our part for Dark Horse because they've done so much for us. Um, and three, you were nominated for an Eisner. Well, there's that. <laughs> that was coming, but it wasn't the next on my list. Ah. <laughs> we did, as I mentioned, uh, about a half a dozen uh, incarnations of the uh, anniversary slideshow. And um, for some reason, the show that we gave in San Diego, and David, you were there, and, and we also had Brandon McKinney as a surprise uh, guest, um, it hit on all eight cylinders. For some reason, that show went the smoothest. It was the snappiest. The audience response was the most gratifying. You guys lent uh, uh, a little bit of, of spice to the show just because it wasn't only Wendy and me. And of course, it, David was in costume as Thornbreak. <laughs> yes, I was. My very <laughs> first cosplay that I sweated through and fear and anxiety of it not being good, but you oh. guys were very kind for my first attempt. And yes, he got to debut himself on stage. So, so, so there was that. And as Wendy had said a moment ago, uh, this came totally out of blue that uh, the book that I wrote about Wendy and her artwork spanning her entire life, not just ElfQuest, Line of Beauty, um, was nominated for an Eisner Award. Now, this is the you know, Oscars of the comics. And uh, that was just mind-blowing. It did not take the honor, but as I suspect we're going to be talking about very soon, just being in the company of the nominees, the talent, the, the, the wonderfulness, um, I will never forget. Right. Um, what the heck? We might as well just jump into it because I remember saying to Wendy after San Diego was over, 
we don't ever have to do another San Diego because this one can't get any better than what we just did. Famous last words, right? Famous last words. Famous last words because in email uh, about a month ago, we heard from the Comic-Con committee that they were inviting us as guests to the 2019 version of Comic-Con International because it's their 50th anniversary. And we have been going almost as long as San Diego has been a show. We haven't been to everyone, and there are some people we know who have. But we've been to almost all of them. So I guess the committee looks upon us as kind of family slash elder statesmen or something like that. But perennials, wait. perennials, perennial. <laughs> wait, there's more. <laughs> Literally yesterday we heard that we had been nominated again in the Eisner Awards for their Hall of Fame. Yep. What do we do to keep... What do I do? My brain wants to explode. <laughs> well, don't do that. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do it at San Diego. Well, okay. yes, yeah, save it for doing it on stage. That, it, it ought to be memorable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny because you're talking about what were memorable... Uh, uh, instances from the 40-year tour, and we thought, we can't top this. We How can we possibly follow this act? You know how to make the gods laugh. Tell them your intentions. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now, as, as far as memories go that are, are maybe, um, how do I want to describe it? Not dark, but just uh, a little bit more intense and possibly stressful was I remember Chicago as being our most intense, our biggest, uh, the hardest work I have surely ever done at a convention because everybody and his dog wanted a sketch. And, uh, you know, I really wanted to as uh, accommodate as many people as I could. And I think I ended up over a period of three days doing 70 uh, sketches and by the end my my hand was literally you know uh, people like to make uh, cramped hand jokes at um, autographings and you kind of just want to slap them because you know it's not a joke you should make but you could literally have made a cramped hand joke to me and it be truthful about uh, Chicago well, I think you underestimated the number of sketches you did. I'd have to dig into the records, but I Probably think it was more closer to I think it was closer to a hundred. A hundred, yeah. And it was the first time in all the years I can remember of us touring, doing book signings, and you doing sketches. The first time I can ever remember you saying to me that you were in pain. Yes. That your hand was hurting because yes. There's no such thing as writer's cramp from doing autographs because it's just a repetitive thing. You get into a rhythm and it's easy to do, but you were hurt yeah, for the well, first time. Well, it's because, you know, the, the pens had to be gripped a certain way to control the line and that 
you know, that co eventually causes stress on your fingers, yeah. you know, and to repeat it over and over again. So I would say that that was the most intense experience that I can remember of last year. Well, I want to just say on behalf of all of the fans out there that um, we're lucky enough to be able to get one of the sketches that every ounce of that, um, that effort that you put in and love that you put in and, and even pain is appreciated. And I can oh. say that, at, you know, I, I am the proud recipient of, you know, a sketch of, from you guys, um, but helping you guys at a lot of these appearances oh, yes. and helping to wrangle the fan lines who wanted to, um, to get a sketch from you. I really, really saw and felt firsthand how meaningful it was for them to be able to get something like that from you. And so, um, yes. I, again, I think I speak for all the fans um, who were lucky enough and even those who weren't that just thank you for doing that. I mean, it's, it was obviously a lot of hard work and, um, and the fact that you still powered through, even though your hand was cramping, uh, is why you're so special. Oh, thank you. Well, it's something we really wanted to do. And, and while we have this opportunity, I really want everyone to know how really invaluable in so many ways your help was mm -hmm. th this past year. Uh, you weren't at every single convention that we did, but, but you did your best to be at, at most of them. And David, you know, is, is just a marvelous uh, person. A pe he's a marvelous people person. And he is so good at uh, putting fans at ease, talking to them while they're standing in line, because some of them get very excited. They get very nervous and, oh, my God, what am I going to, going to say and that kind of thing. And David is there to, you know, calm them down and make them feel better and ask them what they want and, you know, just get just keep everything organized. And he's wonderful on panels. And, uh, you know, all, his experience doing the podcast just makes him an expert on ElfQuest in general and kind of an expert on wrangling us. <laughs> you know, he's, he's very good at sensing when, you know, maybe Richard's about to explode or I'm about to faint and he will step in. <laughs> those, those are actually the two things that I am most on alert for. It's like Richard explosion, Wendy fainting. <laughs> And then quick, what can I do to help? <laughs> <laughs> and he's, he's really marvelous at intuiting things like that. And, and so we both, uh, David, really, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for all the help that you gave us last year. You, you, it was invaluable. Uh, and uh, just seeing you walk up and knowing that you were going to be there with us uh, every day was, um, it, it, it made everything easier. It made it, it all feel right. Well, thank you for saying that. And, you know, it was a gift to be able to do that for you guys. Uh -huh. So, and, and for teaching me, at least, a new word, bio-break. Oh, yes, bio-break. <laughs> bio-break. <laughs> so, so for those who have never heard the term, this is a word that we nature geeks, because, you know, in my real world, you know, I'm a naturalist. And so um, it's just a politer way of saying I got to go to the john. <laughs> I got to have a bio break. I got to take care of my biological needs. Excuse me. I'll be right back. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we've been using it ever since. Well, and, and it's the most marvelous excuse because nobody questions you. You just go bio break and you, you stop in the middle of a drawing well, look, or whatever. Listen, if I can add um, taught Richard Peeney a new word to uh, my resume. Yes. I think that's pretty darn cool. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. So bask in the glory while you may. Um, <laughs> 
All right. Well, so getting, getting back to no, there's one more. Okay. I mean, probably six more, but there's one more that that uh, uh, that I want to add to the question, and that was Las Vegas, which was mm. the middle of November, mm. and however the universe uh, saw fit to arrange this, Stan Lee had passed away literally the week before. So, um, not even a full week, just days before it, it, it was not even a full week. Yeah. And the organizer, uh, for great American comic con, his name is Chandler Rice arranged two things that we were a part of. Uh, the first of course was a, a very moving tribute to Stan Lee, uh, the Sunday morning of the show. And Wendy and I were invited to, get up at a, at a, a podium and say a few words about the effect that Stanley had on our lives. And we were able to say, well, if it hadn't been for Stanley's writing and the words that he put into the mouth of the silver surfer back in 1969, mm -hmm. that moved Wendy so much to write a letter that was printed that I responded to, we wouldn't be standing here today because we would never have met. Yep. So that was one of two incredible memories from the Las Vegas show. The other was uh, the afternoon before it started. And we were invited along with a half a dozen other uh, writers and artists to visit a hospital uh, near Las Vegas where uh, kids of all ages who are battling cancer can come get treatment in a wonderfully um, friendly, warm, caring environment. And uh, Chandler and his people have already donated tons of comics to this hospital for the kids to read. So it was kind of a match made somewhere nice that um, for the last couple of years, they've been bringing in guests from the convention to just interact with the kids. Wendy drew sketches for the kids. And some of those kids were you know really firecrackers <laughs> oh they were you 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 seriously were not aware of how sick they were because they did not act aware of how sick they were and they were simply interested i don't know how many elsas i drew all the little girls <laughs> wanted a black and white drawing of elsa that they could color and so we you know we talked about frozen odd infinitum <laughs> but one one memory stood out for me was a young man was getting a chemo drip in another part of the room and i came over to him and uh, he wanted a sketch of batman he wanted a serious grown-up sketch of Batman and I you know I hadn't had too much experience drawing Batman but I kind of knew the gist of the character so I drew him a nice dark serious kind of angry looking Batman and I asked him what is it about Batman that you like the most and he and this young man with the chemo drip in his arm said his confidence wow but the the ultimate story we heard that day Richard do you remember the little boy who had the visit from Batman, you want to tell that one? Because I'll cry if I try to tell it. Well, that's why you should tell it, because you will remember it better than okay. I did, because you were there, you were right there. All right, I will try to get through this, but the little guy, maybe five, six years old. Now, among other things Chandler does is bring 
uh, people dressed as superheroes. So w when we were there, we had Spider-Man, we had Batman, we had uh, Catwoman, we had Wonder Woman, who was about 85 years old. And she was marvelous. I love it. And, uh, uh, you know, but the others, you know, very much looked like the characters. And the, and the guy who played Batman often visits this hospital as Batman. And, and one of the aides there, this lovely young woman, uh, kind of took me aside and pointed to a little boy there, five or six years old, and said, you know, you wouldn't believe it the way he's running around right now, but that little boy four days ago had open heart surgery. Wow. And the Batman that was there came to see him that day just before his surgery. And the little boy took his hand and said, will you please put Batman's strength into me? And uh, the guy somehow stayed glued together and he said, yes, I will put my strength into you. And he put his hand over the little boy's heart. And that little boy, I swear to you, <laughs> was running around like a maniac. And, and, uh, and she said to me, you know, we see miracles like this all the time. There is no explaining them. It's just that the kids don't know how bad it could get. Mm -hmm. All they know is what they want. They want to run. They want to play. They want to color. They want to read comics. They want to watch TV, they want to do all the things that kids do, and they don't even think about how sick they are. And uh, it, it, all of it put together was such a tremendous lesson about life that I don't, I don't think either one of us will ever forget, that, you know, things don't have to be heavy and morbid and dark when you're in a situation like that they can be bright and full of color and full of life and full of full of hope mm -hmm. so the the operative word when we left that hospital was hope but i think we were all changed by the experience and it was all thanks to chandler wow okay so we're all emotional <laughs> I, well, all of our faces are filling up here yeah. um you, you honestly um you know honestly what that makes me immediately think of and i don't know if this if this is a connection that you guys even make but what that sounds like to me what you just described how that child was able to respond to this horrible situation is the way that's the way living in the now and being hopeful yes and focusing on the positive and living yes. your life regardless of what what bad situations you might have to face you know like yes and and so you know paying that forward that what that little boy kind of taught you by being there is what you have taught all of us oh. so don't don't underestimate the power of your storytelling and your work you know to to take that message full circle well you you are being segue master for this podcast david because one of the things that we did in the slideshow this year or last year for the anniversary was something we had not done ever before or if we had it was so long ago but we realized that we wendy and i had and have a lot to be thankful for in the creation and production of ElfQuest 
because of all the different kinds of feedback that you, the readers, the fans, most of whom we'll never meet, uh, certainly not in person, we may meet them in a comment thread on Facebook or whatever, but the, the feedback that has come to us from you, the big universal plural you, has showed us things that we might not have realized on the surface where it's important to realize things. Yeah. Um, can you give an example? Oh, I can give many examples. Fans, uh, uh, you know, the response to the end of Final Quest was 99.9% positive, which is not to say everybody raved because a lot of the the, the responses were quiet and thoughtful and yeah. deep yes. and yes. intimate. Yes. Uh, and, and those, and, those and, meant just as much. Oh, they meant just as much. And yeah. people shared with us that they cried, but they felt things and they felt both devastated and uplifted. Mm -hmm. uh, the feedback was, was almost universally wonderful. Uh, actually, the feedback was universally wonderful. There were a very few, I don't think, there were half a dozen people who wrote to say they were disappointed. Mm -hmm. And that's valid for them too, but I don't want to get distracted. Um, people would write to us, they would let us know that, for example, ElfQuest helped them in their effort to be who they are. For example, whoever and whatever they wanted to be, whether it's an area of sexuality and they're straight or gay or bi or trans or anything else. And we got letters saying, you know, I was having a tough time mm -hmm. just coping with being who I am because around me there's a vibe of prejudice or a vibe of unacceptance. But through ElfQuest, you showed me that there is acceptance, there is inclusivity, there is this wonderful feeling of community and of tribe. Mm -hmm. And that has given me strength. Mm -hmm. So that's just one out of, oh, I don't and know then, how many examples. Well, and then again, uh, just the issue of coping with loss itself. We got so many uh comments and responses from people saying you know my my pet died or my grandma died or my father died or i lost my brother just two days ago and reading the ending of ElfQuest helped me to cope with the loss of this of this loved one and that's a that's a very big deal. That's that's almost too much to process. Mm -hmm. That that something you know that a story you told actually helped somebody get through a major transition in their lives, like the loss of a family member. And and uh, I personally include pets as family members, so you know that that covers the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because those are those are the big events of our lives. The lot you know births deaths, um, moving, uh, you know, changing, changing jobs, being sick, getting well. These are all the big events of our lives. 
and we have so much to be thankful for because so many people have shared their lives with us mm -hmm. just as we have shared ElfQuest with them. We, and mostly Wendy, works on it so much that sometimes it's easy for us to get a little tunnel vision like the work of making it is all there is in the world and once it goes out well there's the next one to do yeah and and you can lose sight of the fact that each issue is a pebble dropped into a pond and the ripples go and they expand very very far that's well, an amazing <clears throat> excuse me an amazing way of talking about it and why i'm really glad that we're doing having this conversation now and not yes. last February yes. um, or March, right after it was done, because this is exactly the kind of perspective that I was hoping to hear from you guys, um, you know, or that that you would just have a little bit of distance and time from doing it all yeah. to have some reflection on it. So Yeah, I think to sum it up, at least from my point of view, the rewards have been far more and far more diverse than we could ever have possibly imagined. Uh, you know, when you're in a profession, people think of reward as compensation in terms of, you know, sales or popularity or that sort of thing. Was that there? Yes, that was. But far more so were, were the rewards that came that, that simply came out of the blue that we simply could not have imagined. What she said. <laughs> All right, let's. Um, I want to. I want to spend a, a little bit of time talking about the actual story. Oh yes. And so you guys have done many, many interviews over the course of the past year, <laughs> and you know, the a lot of you've gotten a lot of questions about well, what was challenging, what was hard, and I know you've mentioned um, things like having to draw the violent death of Moonshade oh, being a very difficult thing yeah. for you to do. Um, yeah. For both of you, the grueling deadlines, um, you know, were things that I think were a challenge. What I'm curious about is what were some of the easiest parts of telling the final quest? What was, what, what was a joy, what just flowed right out and was a blessing to have to do? You know what popped into my mind? Two-Edge finally got laid. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> it's funny you that, and that is one of my questions i wanted to ask you about the decision to give two edge a happy ending yeah. and i'm not even going to get into the double entendre there. <laughs> you naughty boy so go ahead let's talk about that so why 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 did two edge here, need that go ahead Rachel. here i was here i was going to be all high-minded and say, oh, well, you know, this part was hard, but, but that part was difficult. But, but when we would sit together for the final script edit and we'd go over that and we'd tweak, that was so much fun and it was so easy and it was, and here she comes up with, you <laughs> edge got laid. Well, of all the dangling threads, so to speak, in the story for so many don't years. You, don't you ever get after me again for my innuendos. <laughs> no, I actually, I really thought that was a wonderfully sweet note to include within yeah. all of the many, you know, things that you put into the final question.
request. Um, and I was, again, I was just curious, like what your motivation was for giving him, um, you know, an ending where, you know, I mean, he's generally been a villain or a conflicted oh, yeah. character and an antagonist and he's just had a hard life and yeah. we just felt it was time that, that he had a good time All right. and, and, and what did Audrey say to him? You should explore your other half now mm -hmm. and final quest of all of the arcs within the entirety of elf quest is i think head and shoulders more intense more potentially dark mm. more potentially upliving uh up, up, uplifting um than any other series so, you, you, you have mentioned Moonshade's violent death. Mm. Uh, you've not mentioned the destruction of the father tree. You've not mentioned the, the horror at sea, uh, the sea death. battle. Chemo's death. You've yeah. not mentioned Chemo's death. And, of yeah. course, there's Cutter. Now, come on. <laughs> <laughs> balance can balance. We have a little balance here and if you think back to edge you mentioned the word conflicted every time we've seen him he's 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 sometimes been a little bit more settled and sometimes oftentimes a lot less settled uh, what better character to give some happy Final uh, finality to oh yeah the um, oh yeah two two edge uh, gave me some of my favorite moments in Final Quest uh, you know of course Audrey flirting with him is one is is one <laughs> but uh, I personally loved you know you asked what what was easy and it may not have looked easy because it was very grim but I loved staging the scene in silhouette. In, in conjunction with Lita's beautiful little song, you know, uh, perhaps not as intended, broken hearts get mended. And here, uh, Tree Stump has, has been wounded, he's down, the, the Jensman is gonna finish him off, and here comes Two Edge to pick him up, sling him over his shoulder, and then the Jensman shoots Two Edge, and he keeps going. He's just not gonna let Tree Stump down, he's not gonna let him go, he's just gonna get this done, no matter what. And that truly was, was just a breathtaking moment for Two Edge that I really, really enjoyed doing. It was, it was wonderful to stage. It was wonderful to animate because it, it, it's one of my animated scenes, mm -hmm. and um, and it said so much about Two Edge as a character and and how his relationship with Tree Stump has grown to the point where this is you know this is worth risking one's life for. Um, it's it said so much in silhouette without any dialogue, just the just the words of Lita's song, and uh, it was I think it was kind of a shining moment in uh, in Final Quest. It definitely was uplifting. Uh, you, yeah. you said that was one of your animated yeah. moments. What what do you mean by that? By that I mean a sequence of panels where you you have the image repeated with slight changes so that you can see a character lift his arm. Uh, you know, hold the gun up, uh, fire the gun, put and drop the gun, and fall 
uh, the, the head falls. Uh, it, it's all very slight movement, mm -hmm. but it is your eye animates it. Right. So That's why you, I asked for the clarification, because it's a technique that you have been using since the very beginning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very effectively. Richard. No, I was just going to I was I was going to be mean and wreck Wendy again, because as another example of an animated sequence, I'm going to say one word filter. Oh, filter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh. <laughs> the boot. The boot. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, not, not that one. Not that one. What? No, the the final boot. No, no. All right. What are you thinking of, my love? Where he falls over. Oh yes. Oh, that bit of uh, yes. That was like twelve. That was at least a dozen panels. Now, okay, I will get through this. <laughs> there's a story uh some people got mad at that scene and they and they said why didn't cutter help him when he fall, fell down why did cutter just stand there and look at him well anybody who has ever had an elderly pet this scene was based on my experience with my darling little pomeranian angel in the last month of her life she could be doing just fine. She could be walking down the hallway and all of a sudden, whammo, she would simply tip over and faint. And uh, it had to do with a heart murmur. Uh, you know, the vet explained to me that this would happen and maybe she would come out of it and maybe she wouldn't, you know, uh, toward this last month. And it got to the point where I would be, you know, walking with her and she would tip over and she would just be lying there and I would, I, instead of trying to pick her up or touch her or anything, I would just kind of watch for a minute to see where things were and to, to figure out what would be the next thing to do here. And that is exactly what Cutter did. You know, he, he had seen Filcher tip over like that multiple times. He knew he might get up or he might not. <laughs> and he was going to deal with it either way. Um, so, so this was a, this scene was actually a little tribute to my, my darling angel and, and the way she's so bravely faced her last few weeks of I, life. I, um, I really loved that particular sequence and, mm -hmm. um, especially the tiny little subtle smile you saw that, that you gave to Cutter. Yeah. Um, when when Filcher does get up um, yes. again in, in in the animation of the yes. you know in air quotes of that that the way you drew that you know Cutter's face is kind of stolid it's sort of yes. you know stoic he doesn't really have much of an expression yes. and then you just see this teeny little smile and not only in the moment of that scene is it special for anybody that has ever had an animal companion but it also to me was a little spark of hope because this was in the middle of Cutter's His descent. Madness. Into yes. madness well, in the cave. So yes, and, and and that's why the only words in that sequence are cutters. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Which which are words I actually spoke to Angel when she got up, and uh, so we've often said that Elfquest is biographical, and and here's an example mm -hmm. of of real life being reflected. And, and those are some of the most cool stories to hear from you guys um, and to hear one from Final Quest. You know, we've heard others mm -hmm. from other you know, stages of ElfQuest. So that's that's pretty neat. Mm. So, Richard, a few minutes ago, you mentioned the panel that you did at San Diego Comic-Con last year um, where 
again, I, I happened to be present for that one. And one of the things that was really awesome about that particular panel is that you had added into the slideshow an explanation of how Cutter's journey in over the course of 40 years fit into the classic storytelling mythological model of the hero's journey. Yes. Now, I don't want to get into the details of that right now because what I want everybody listening to do is to go and watch this because Richard has made it available online. It's on the ElfQuest website. So just go to ElfQuest.com, look under the latest news and scroll down. You'll find it. It's also on the ElfQuest's uh, YouTube channel. Um, so, so everybody go and watch that because Richard does this fascinating, you know, slide by slide. There's like a whole, there's a whole sort of model for what the hero's journey is. And mm -hmm. until Richard, you did that that day, it didn't, I, I didn't even make all those connections. So mm -hmm. it was really important. But my question for you guys here is why do you think the hero's journey was the right way to tell Cutter's tale? Well, I, I, I have to jump in and forgive me. I can't even remember, but I don't recall that the hero's journey was a part of the slideshow. No, it wasn't. In its earliest incarnation. It wasn't, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, the idea had to have come from Wendy. It did. One night, you and I were talking, and you were saying, you know, for, the, for San Diego, I really want to add something to the slideshow, and I'm, I'm trying to think, what, what can we add to just enrich it and make it special for San Diego? And it, it just came right off the top of my head, because this was something I had thought of occasionally, was I would love to see a step-by-step, 12-step uh, explanation for how uh, Final Quest in particular, but really all of ElfQuest, fits into the classic hero's journey. And you sparked on that immediately and went and looked up the 12 steps, and, and we just began talking about which scenes fit uh, each moment. Exactly. Yes, yes, I remember this now. And here's the thing. Um, the hero's journey in concept has existed since stories. Joseph Campbell crystallized and codified the hero's journey in, in his many, many works. I think Wendy was born <laughs> knowing the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. because it has informed just about every story that she's ever told up to and certainly including ElfQuest. Mm -hmm. So when she said, how about the hero's journey? It was an absolute no-brainer, of course. Um, and uh, I, I feel that that show was ten times better for the inclusion of that little bit. Well, you could see how fascinated the audience was, you know, while you, sometimes while you're talking, I will take my eyes off at you, off of you and take a look at how the audience is reacting. And, and I saw people's faces that were just glued. Exactly. You know, yeah. No, that's was, exactly why I, I bring yeah. it up 
because I felt the same way, mm. having seen the slideshow a couple of times prior, and then you kind of debuting that aspect of it. I thought it was just brilliant. And I'm so glad that we got that recorded and it's out there for, for people to watch. But yes. um, so, so when you guys went into telling ElfQuest back in the late 70s, Wendy, when you um, pitched your your all of your ideas to Richard. Mm-hmm. How I mean, were you really cognizant of the hero's journey? Had you read up on Campbell, no. or was it intuitive? No, no, I was not familiar with Campbell until years into into doing ElfQuest, and I think I got familiar with him because there was the uh, the show on PBS. Remember, Richard? We kind of watched it faithfully. It was called The Power of Myth. The Power right? of Myth. Yep. And it's yeah. based on a book, right? Yes. Joseph Campbell's book. Uh, exactly. But that that did not come out until... It was it was in the 80s, I'm sure. Yeah. Maybe, maybe later. I don't remember. Yeah. But, but uh, uh, um, certainly ElfQuest got started without either one of us really even knowing who Joseph Campbell was. Right. But what we did know was Once Upon a Time. Okay, explain that. Once upon a time, having grown up on fairy tales, uh, you know, Lang's fairy tales, uh, all the beautiful, you know, East of the Sun, West of the Moon, uh, all these fabulous, uh, you know, the Grimm's fairy tales, all, you know, Once Upon a Time launches you into something has to happen. Something has to happen to set the story in motion. And somebody has to be the, the, the bearer of the story. That's the hero. What the hero does, what the hero decides to, to do, and how he faces his various challenges is what the story is about. The story starts with a fire. The fire is the motivating factor that launches the call the the fire is the call to adventure but i didn't know that term in the beginning i knew once upon a time and i knew it had the story had to start with an event that would launch the hero got it yeah and then it just became a series of beats Mm -hmm. to you know logical beats what would he do then what would he do then what would he do then I think that's um, incredible. The again, the the intuitive storytelling ability to know that, and then later find this this sort of model that describes exactly what you've been doing. Oh yeah, that you can then take and take it to the next level um, as you've gone through with the next, you know, the however many decades after you discovered Joseph Campbell with this. So um, yeah, it's, I was it's pretty cool. I was pretty amazed when Richard did sift through material and images to see what would fit the 12 stages of the hero's journey, I was very amazed at how quickly it all fell into place and how we could easily find those moments, you know, like the ordeal and the, the, uh, the descent into the cave, the return with the elixir, the, the interesting concept that when the hero returns with the, the elixir, that's not the end of the hero's journey. And then you have to have resurrection. And is it possible that resurrection could also include your death? Right. And it does. Yeah. And, and so finding all these things that fit were, were very astonishing. So, um, so another perfect uh, tee up for me, Wendy, because one of my questions for you guys was, 
with Cutter's death, he, in a way, is rebirthed as the father tree. Absolutely. And I'm just, I want to hear from you about that. What does that mean to you? Why did you choose that? It was clearly something that you knew a long time ago was going to happen because... We the, set it up in dream time. Well, you, and I was thinking of troll names and soul... Troll oh, games and soul troll names. Troll games and soul where, games. Where Cutter yes. himself has yeah. this, this, this panel where... You know, in the very beginning of that story, he's frustrated and mm-hmm. he's trying to reach out and figure out, you know, recognition and all of these big things. And mm-hmm. he says, I just want to be, you know, the seed and the branch and, you know, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And and mm-hmm. Skywise, you know, reiterates that yes. as Red Lance is growing the new father tree yes. fr- from Cutter's body. So you, so are, you knew a while ago so that you were going to do that. And I want to hear from you guys well, dream- the symbolism of trees and so on. And yeah, Dreamtime came before that. And in Dreamtime, at the very end of Dreamtime, Cutter says, I swear on my heart, there will always be a father tree. Yes. <laughs> and then you also have Red Lance's dream in Dreamtime, which includes an image of uh, Cutter's death and resurrection, uh, but in very symbolic terms. Okay, so, so, we... so the tree in Red Lance's dream is... Oh, okay, okay. Everyone, my mind is blowing. I'm making the mind-blowing <laughs> symbol over my head. And and, and it's funny because one of my other questions is you have obviously dropped clues and hints all along the way. And I, my question was going to be, did fans pick up on all of them? Well, duh, clearly we didn't because. No, no, you might've picked up and said, this is a meatloaf. You know how, you know how they say when you're watching a movie and a meatloaf flies across the room, pay attention because it's, it's going to be important later. I'm sure many fans saw things like that, you know, the, the Red Lance's dream or Cutter saying, I swear on my heart, and said, meet love, but they didn't, they didn't put it together. No, no, no. So, <laughs> well, so, well, how, how could they possibly know how literal right. that <laughs> prophecy, yeah. I swear on my heart, yeah, boom, it's coming out like a chestburster. Right. The, the, the oh, stop. Here. <laughs> oh my god well yeah i mean honestly like until this very moment and, and we're having this conversation mm-hmm. i i did not put the, the the two and the two there from cutter's comment about i swear on my heart until you just said that richard so um wow when when red lance drops it's all again in animation it's a it's a series of six silent panels when red lance drops the seed in leech's hand and you can see that she's turned her hands over and put her hands on his chest and when she takes her hands away, you you know that the seed has gone into his chest. Right. Um, I, I'm just leading everybody toward what they know is coming because they, they've known it subliminally since dream time. Yeah. You know, I, I, I trust the readers to have known it on some level that the next thing is come, that is coming is the father tree will be reborn. Right. Wow. So <laughs> again, I'm just sitting over here in the corner with my mind being blown yet again. But um, so why was that important for you in the telling of the story that the father tree be reborn, that Cutter have some physical manifestation? You know, uh, why did you choose that? Cutter says at the end of Siege at Blue Mountain, there's my skin and there's, there's me. And when I die, there'll just be me but I'll let this world decide when. His death was perfect 
uh, in his mind because that very thing he intuitively felt would always be so, was so. On the other hand, there is this consciousness of his tribe, that his tribe must go on, the pack, the pack must survive, the, there must be that place of protection, there must be home. It's always been all about home. And the father tree has always represented that, and he's just seen it cut down again. So, what, I mean, Richard, maybe you can expand I, on this a little, but what else could have happened but that whatever was left of Cutter would feed the father tree? And I'm going to jump in here with, with a little something extra that just occurred to me that I Wendy has talked about this a lot, but we haven't talked about what I'm about to say. And that is why a tree mm -hmm. and ever since she was a little girl and she lived in a big ranch house in the middle of a big field in Gilroy and her grandmother's house was next door and there was a frog pond in the backyard of her grandmother's house and there was a great big pepper tree mm -hmm. that was growing next to the frog pond and as often as she could as a little little girl wendy would go to that tree by that little pond and make up stories yes. or just commune with the tree or see things that most people wouldn't be able to see because they don't have the imagination to see them. Well, that's, so, where I, that's where I learned about step fungus. And, and, and how to put the steps on the father tree because yeah. they were growing on this because, pepper tree? Because the tree, this pepper tree had the step fungus growing like little stairs. And you can imagine little fairies or leprechauns climbing up the Absolutely. stairs. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so, so that tree... I suspect just became subconsciously or semi-consciously just such an important environmental part of her imagination and thus her storytelling. Absolutely. That of course, Absolutely. if she could imagine little creatures living in this tree, well, let's put the elves in a bigger version of it. And, and uh, having now... Wendy has experienced this before I did, but recently we both experienced one of the devastating fires that went through Southern California that yeah. came really uncomfortable, clo uh, uh, comfortably close to the house we have out there. We saw many trees that looked as if they were just dead. The trunks were charred black. The leaves were gone. And then later, with the blessing of some rain, we were able to see a lot of these trees like say, okay, <clears throat> that was uh, interesting. Now I'm going to get back to growing again because <laughs> the fire actually kind of is like molting a, a, a skin to a tree. Yes, Fire helps them 
rejuvenate. I'm not sure if that's the right word, David. You yeah. know a better word, but the father, these trees come back. So, of course, the father tree comes back. Mm -hmm. It has to, because that's in the nature of trees and rejuvenation and resurrection. Well, that's why we said that uh, Cutter's body was placed within the still living tree. You, you saw that the tree, which had been blown up from within, was had been burning from within, and Red Lance put that fire out, you know, drawing moisture from the tree, sweating it out to put the fire out. But Cutter's body was laid inside what was a still living tree. It was important to acknowledge that it, it hadn't been killed. Well, after, after what I learned about jade trees these last couple of weeks. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> They're almost immortal. Have, <laughs> well, you I, see, that's I, the Chinese. I have a brand new appreciation for just the tenaciousness of trees. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, jade trees, uh, I, uh, the Chinese consider them to be a symbol of immortality. Well, there you go. Because they're, they're practically impossible to kill. <laughs> so they make a great houseplant, too. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know if you want to include this or not, but there are some jade trees in the backyard and the fire burned through the trunk of one of them and the tree had fallen over and the leaves were still green and, and fat and sassy and the, the, the white flowers came. The thing had no connection to the ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and we learned that they are so hardy. Hardy. Just, just, you know, clean it off, stick it back in the ground and it will reroot and you'll have your jade tree back. Yeah. Well, and again, like to me as a reader, that is what... I got out of that, like, life will go on. Life will go Even on. Even in, you know, in the midst of, of horrible situations and destruction and death. And that, to me, again, is the way. And this is yes. something that you have taught us all. And, you know, I, I don't say this lightly. It's a mindset and a, and a worldview that um, for so many of us who have read ElfQuest and have been able to take that, it, it actually is... It's a philosophy that helps us navigate the real world. And so, um, you know, I think the tree and the rebirth was the perfect symbol and the perfect way for Cutter to, you know, complete the hero's journey yes. with, you know, a quote unquote resurrection that wasn't a literal That's, in well, the sense. Is, well, I, I call it a literal resurrection. Well, it is, but not in the same form, right? Like not we didn't get good old Cutter, you know, wielding, you know, new moon at yeah. the end, right? His body is gone but it's been transformed into yeah. something different. Yeah. It has. And uh, David, speaking of resurrection, I'd like to resurrect a conversation that you and I started yesterday, which was about the, you know, the attitude towards death. Animals don't know that they can die. They, they have an instinct for survival. You know, a rabbit will run if a wolf is chasing it. But they really don't know that they are mortal. Humans are really strange animals because they are the only animal in the world that knows it's, it not only can, but is going to die. Right. That, that death is inevitable. And so humans spend a lot of time coping with that knowledge that someday there will be an end to their bodies. Their bodies will stop and go back 
to the earth. And they cope with uh, stories, they cope with religion, they cope with myth and legend, they cope with songs, they they cope with denial, they, they cope with drinking, <laughs> you know, you name it. Human beings have their ways of dealing with the knowledge that they are mortal. Um, but for the Wolf Riders, and particularly for Cutter, because that's, that's who he is, the knowledge, I, I don't know if people can relate to this, but he actually found the knowledge that he was mortal comforting. Because he found the idea of immortality exhausting. And he was not looking forward to that. He, you know, whereas Skywise, whereas his dear friend Skywise yearned for the stars and talked from, for the stars and made himself immortal, uh, making it possible that he could have, as he would say, all the time in the universe to go explore and just go have everything he wanted. Mm -hmm. To Cutter, that was not something he would love. Skywise could never understand that. And it was hard for Cutter to understand Skywise's actual desire for that immortality and to, and to just keep going and going and going. You yeah. know, Cutter would say, to what end, really? Well, and, and ultimately their paths did diverge yes. because of that, right? I mean, yes. that's, which was also a very painful part of the final quest that we all had to cope with. Um, and our various ways of coping. <laughs> um, going back to Cutter's death, um, I just want to call out the the wonderfully painful funeral, if for lack of a better word, panel. Really? That is, to this day, just is like a, a, a punch in the gut in its sadness and beauty. And this, of course, is the panel I'm talking about where you see Cutter laid out at the foot of the, the, the what's left of the father tree and the mm -hmm. tribe around him and Ember is saying a few words of a you know lack of a better term a eulogy. Um, well, she's quoting Bearclaw. Right, and you know, full wolf, right, Wolfrider's life is a short, sharp. Uh, I forgot the exact quote. A but, bolt of bright fire right. in the night. And um, it's very um, Renaissance painting esque, <laughs> and I was curious if that was deliberate or if it just happened naturally or were you thinking of channeling the great masters not or... not, not deliberate uh, you know certainly not a tribute to any specific painter but but i think uh, i had been inculcated since childhood with with images of myth and legend and images of mourning are are very common especially in renaissance paintings and whether it's especially the mourning of the body of christ and so forth but then there are other painter paintings from mythology like the death of balder and i i remember writing about this in a comment on facebook that that if you could liken cutter's death to anything in myth and legend it would be the death of balder uh, because uh, campbell referred to him as the tellurian Hero. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, I think the word was Tylerian, which means the hero that is willingly dismembered to be reborn, hmm. to to return to return to the ground and be reborn. He was killed 
by a by a plant. He was ki- he was killed by something of nature, uh, basically a stalk of ivy that uh, Loki threw. Okay, and uh, <clears throat> it was the only thing in all the universe that could kill him. And Loki figured it out and threw it at him, and it killed him. So Balder is taken by something of nature, and sent into the underworld, and he and, but he resurrects every spring. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what does a tree do? A yeah. tree, every spring. It's, you know, so I, I, I think we can say that Cutter is a Tylerian hero. Okay, I'm going to have so, to read up on that. Yes. Yeah. I, I wasn't familiar with either that term or really the character of Balder, so. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, no, no, Balder's great. He was He was the god of light. He was very elfin in many of his qualities, very close to nature. He was pure. He was innocent. He was uh, trusting. He was loving. He was he was all good things, and all the gods loved him, and that's why Loki hated him. Okay. I'm and, so. and he was just one more incarnation of the hero with a flaw. Yes. It's fatal from a very, very tiny source yes right uh balder was so wonderful that everything in nature that 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 the gods asked everything in nature don't harm him but because they thought that what was a holly or mistletoe uh, it was actually holly i said ivy but i I, meant, I actually meant holly it was a piece of holly well the gods thought that holly wasn't worth asking so loki found this out and made a dart out of a holly tree and killed balder that way achilles you know about the achilles heel yes and and cutter was laid low by a tiny tiny little thing of nature the same as these other yes. tellurian so, which which puts him in the realm of a demigod like hercules wasn't hercules killed by a scorpion Yep, another one. Yeah, so so you know, Cutter is not a god. He's not a mortal. He's not a man. He's he's you know a a, a nature spirit, but he he does qualify as a demigod. Yeah, well, one of the big things that I noticed about Final Quest is you guys took the the this epic story of ElfQuest into. A much more like in a much more deliberate way into uh, a, a place of like cultural mythology mm-hmm. right and everything that you were just describing um you know the the your choice to give cutter a, an ending that actually echoed many of the endings in of, of key mythological figures yes. from you know mythologies around the the world in the real world um and and related to that to me is your decision to um, connect him to to Maine as one being. Yes. And, um, you know, for the life of me, um, I still have not been able to wrap my my brain around how that works. And I finally figured it out. Ah. And what I figured out is that I don't have to figure it out. Because if you look <laughs> at all of these historical mythological figures, right, um, they do things that are not that you cannot explain yes. in real-world logic and math and science. And yes. that is not the point. Yes. The point is the what it means, the meaning behind it, yes. and what the story is telling you. And so I don't have to know how Tamane and Cutter fit if I were to make an algorithm, right? I just need to know that it is and what it <laughs> and, means. And Richard's dying to say something. <laughs> and guess what? 
What? You know what that is? No. Perfect. Yes. There you go. There you go. No, I, I, I mean, I, it really was a light bulb moment for me one day when um, I was really trying to understand it. And it might have yeah. been in the Facebook fan group discussions. And a lot of us were like really trying to understand it. And yeah. I finally realized like it doesn't really matter if we can explain it. What's more important is that because I can't explain how, um, you know, how Zeus throws a lightning bolt. Right. Or how God or gives gives birth to Athena from his forehead. Right. Or how God plucks a rib and turns it into a woman. Like, um, like it doesn't matter that you can't explain that with our real world understanding of physics. And, you know, like that's not the point of it. The point is the, the story behind it and what it has to teach us. Well, we, we tread on difficult territory anytime we tried to explore the realm of the spirit. You know, we knew that spirits were going to figure as characters occasionally in Final Quest. Kavi's appearance uh, in, in the Ember Tear storyline was, uh, was crucial to Tear realizing who he was. And, and sort of getting his act together after, <laughs> after that realization. So, so we, Richard and I decided between us, all right, spirits were going to be something. Yes, you can interact with a spirit. Yes, you can communicate with it. It does it on its own time. It won't tell you everything you want to know, and it leaves when it wants. But <laughs> it's, it is definitely something that elves can interact with. Um, and, and so we set this up early in the story to, to be possible all the way through the story so that in Final Quest, when spirit communication is crucial, the reader can say, okay, well, this has happened before, so we know this can happen. Right. Uh, how do you explain spirit communication? How do you, you don't. But oh, if, if we, you set it up we, as this happened, then you, you accept, okay, I saw that before. I saw how that worked, so this, that's how it's working now. But, as in anywhere else in ElfQuest, we didn't just want to reach up the cosmic orifice and pull something out like a magic dragon <laughs> or a unicorn. Yes. We have always wanted at least to tip the hat slightly towards something that could be science in the Arthur C. Clarke sense, he said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah. Well, the elves' magic powers, from the very beginning, we kind of want it. Well, we don't really understand things like telepathy or telekinesis. Could this be a sufficiently advanced technology? Sure, why not? It's not mumbo-jumbo. So the elves have healing powers and plant-growing powers and so on. So when the time came for a discussion about spirits, we spent some Oh, I think there was a, a, a good long little bit of time there. Um, okay, well, what are spirits? Well, they're energy. All right, if they're energy, then energy has characteristics. If energy has characteristics, can it survive 
being outside of the body. Uh, let's talk about quantum entanglement. Let's talk about uncertainty principle. Let's talk about well, Bell's theorem. And may I jump in and say, we had set up astral projection so early in the story where someone says, I sent my spirit out. We set that up so early in the story that yeah. it, was, it was a given. It was a given, but there came a time in Final Quest when what we felt to be reasonable for storytelling purposes needed just a little bit more firming up, not to the point where, as David, you said, I understand it and I can write the equations and I can, I right. can program the algorithm, but just so it makes enough sense mm -hmm. so that somebody can't say, you're bullshitting us. Right. <laughs> yeah, or de deus ex machina is the worst. We, we always wanted to avoid that at all costs. Well, yeah. the, another great example um, that I think illustrates all of this is, is the whole idea of the hum and the vibration, the which hum. on a surface level comes off as very woo, very magical and, you know, moonshade humming and vibrating and disappearing. It's very fairy. But guess what? It's rooted in actual real world potential, like physics, I suppose. So, right? Scientifically speaking, if something hums or vibrates fast enough, it will vibrate faster than the eye can follow and it will seem to disappear. Yeah, and I mean, I've, I've read some things that are beyond my, my brain to really understand, but, um, and Richard, you might have some, some better explanation for this, but just the idea that like matter is vibration and yes. that we all are vibrating and it's part of how the universe is built up and made. And so when I read this in ElfQuest, I'm like, again, mind-blowing, you know, head-exploding, I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I, I want to jump in and say that David and I had a really interesting experience today because we were in Ojai, which is a very hippy-dippy woo-woo town, as we, as we all know. And so there are metaphysical stores there. We went into one, and uh, there were singing. They had singing bowls there, you know, different sizes of the bowls. And explain what those are for people. Listening. All right, a singing bowl is a ceramic bowl, or it can be made of, of brass or, or some kind of... Uh, other metal, and it has a a, a pestle uh, that you that you hit the edge with to make the sound start, and then you uh, use the tool and run it around and around the rim of the bowl, very much like when you make a glass, uh, you know, a half full glass of water sing right. with a wet finger. Well, you you run this tool around the edge of the bowl, and it will hum and vibrate intensely and very loudly and and like a wah 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 kind of a, a vibration and it different notes create different responses in you and and you can sort of tell whether you like that note or or you you really don't want to be around that note and that's that's how people choose which singing bowl is theirs they say well i'm a g sharp or i'm an a or you know whatever note is and so you hadn't had much experience with mm. singing bowls and so today um i i played several of them for david and i remember your response to the a it was, was a little overwhelming yeah because <laughs> it just kept getting the a one was very strong it just kept getting louder and louder and louder and i and i turned to david and i said that's the hum 
and and what and you I, concluded something from that. I said this is exactly what I imagine the inside of the palace to sound like. Precisely, and and then you said, which is why Shuna didn't like it. I said actually, well, Shuna too, but I said I specifically said the Gobacks. The Gobacks. I was thinking of the one Goback who's like, oh my god, this hum is making my head. Yeah. You know, and so mm-hmm. in that moment, it was all of these little connections. Um, you know, you had the bowls that we were working from were kind of crystal they yes. looked like a crystal so immediately yes. there was a visual reference for me to make a connection with the palace yes then you started playing this a note and the more you played it the louder and mm-hmm. more um overwhelming the sound became yes. and it was like again like you said it was kind of like a and i could easily see it being overwhelming and that's why mm-hmm. i i made the connection between the the go-backs but shuna too when she's like i cannot be in the palace yes like, it was a physical experience that explained to me what you guys were talking about in the story that I kind of understood, but now I know it and, better. And then I played yeah. other bowls for him. Uh, like I, I think I played a G sharp for him and you said you liked that one better. You, yeah. you felt more comfortable. So again, the concept of matching homes, you know, matching vibrations are comfortable with each other vibrations that are very different from each other repel each other it it all has a scientific basis all right richard's trying to get a word in here and you see i don't need the palace to sound like anything why because i'm listening to you guys talk about your experience with the singing bowls and half my brain is listening to you talk about this physical sound vibrational hum phenomenon. The other half of my brain is thinking about string theory, which postulates that every bit of matter in the universe is not matter as we understand it, but it's this little thing that we call a string that's vibrating like a violin string, and sometimes they're open like a string, and sometimes they're closed like a loop, and I'm thinking, all those strings, they're teeny tiny infinitesimal singing bowls going at whatever hum they're going at. And I'm not going to be able to hear that sound because it's trillions of cycles per second, if that even has meaning. Mm -hmm. So if the palace is humming on some level, whether it's subatomic or oral that you can hear or something else, I don't care. I don't have to hear it. I just know the whole damn universe is probably humming in some way. Mm -hmm. So why not use that concept, humanize it for the sake of storytelling, Mm -hmm. and put it in ElfQuest? There's, There's always, at least in my mind, going to be some little connection to something that could be in quotes, real. Sure. And that's one of the strengths of ElfQuest. It's not just pure made-up stuff like so much of fantasy is. You know, it's, you know... It, 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 it's it, science that seems like magic. Right. You know, I, it, I like to refer to ElfQuest as science fantasy. Science fantasy is a good term, I think. Another one of my favorite moments in, in Final Quest is when uh, Freetouch asks Moonshade, what do we look like to you? Yes. When you have disappeared yourself because she doesn't have her eyes that she normally sees with Mm -hmm. when she does that. 
And she says, you look to me like glowing, just glowing shapes. But I can recognize you. I can recognize any one of you by your hum, and I can come right to you. And we set that up so that people would understand how she came right to Strongbow just at the moment the bullet was fired. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, this wasn't intentional. She did not come to him to save his life. She wanted a hug. She wanted a last hug. That was what she was thinking. Which makes it even more it, brutal. <laughs> but the timing of it was such that she, she, she went instantly to his particular home just as the bullet was fired. Yeah. Uh, heartbreaking. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, again, I'm, I'm glad all of that came up because mm. I wasn't even going to get into the hum and the bowls, but it, it made perfect sense. Uh, within the context here. I was a little surprised at how many of the elves chose to stay in the world of two moons and not leave. I kind of always assumed that they would all go. In fact, at the very, like even up until towards the end, uh, or maybe the the latter half of the final quest, I was assuming that they were probably all going to go, including the wolf riders. So why did they all stay? Why did so many of them stay and not choose to leave? Very simply, there are stories yet to be told. Wendy and I have done a fair amount of putting heads together in the weeks and months since Final Quest number 24 came out. Because as I said earlier, there's more ElfQuest. We've not made a secret of that. And it's difficult to tell stories, continuing stories of ElfQuest characters if you don't have any (laughs) honestly that that is not really a reason that i would have expected to have been the answer Uh, but it's very practical and it's it's quite good news to hear well also consider this i did not just pull that out of thin air to answer the question because just as all of the the little clues and the little future nods were placed in ElfQuest 10 and 20 and 30 years ago leading up to Final Quest, we have known on some level what these stories must be. Now, you know about Jink and you know about the Rebels, so you know a tiny little bit of a far-off future time, but between the end of Final Quest and there, Aha. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Or <laughs> Which is, I know, really what you're thinking, Richard. Um, <laughs> well, I know, again, uh, I, I could ask, but you're not going to give me any any clues or hints or whatever about what may or may not be cooking in your brain. So um, I will be happy with, I, I'm actually looking at the physical manifestation of Wendy's favorite thing to post on Facebook when we ask questions that we know we're not going to get answers to. And that is... The grin. I'm looking at it right now. So um, I know that I know that that's it. I'm done. No more questions on that. But um, all right. My, my last question. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the evolution of the relationship between human beings and elves within ElfQuest. We start out telling the very first page of ElfQuest is it, it kicks off this story of this animosity of this hatred of this, this, this enmity between these two races of people. Absolutely. The story literally starts with a right. burning at the stake. And we end 
in a much different place. Yes. And I just want your reflection on that. Oh, well, I remember how moving it was to tell Richard, you know what the last page of this is going to be? And he's like, no, what? And I'm going to say the last page of this is going to be the first page. It's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be laid out exactly like the first page was, but instead of the, the fanatical shaman male, we have the matriarchal, a wise woman Shuna in in her very wise woman robes delivering a speech that in some ways is similar to the shamans but with an entirely different intent whereas the shaman was saying accept the sacrifice she's saying accept our gratitude and I'll get through this. Um, <laughs> well, she told me that. <laughs> yeah, you you go on. And, and literally, my brain exploded because how perfect is that? When when you're wrapping up a forty year cycle, I think, oh my God, how do you end it? And she had she knew this. It's going to be a mirror image of the very first page. And I said, boom, drop the mic. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He did indeed. <laughs> and well, in that, yeah, within that, that, that panel is actually um, perfectly embodies kind of where the question's coming from. Because that, that's the answer to the question uh, of what we have to say that humans are capable of evolving, that humans are. Uh, you know, capable of being bridges between the animal and the human world or the, uh, or the supernatural and the natural world. Uh, you know, human beings can raise their hum too. And, uh, you know, so there's, there's not this huge difference. There is not this need for fear. There is not, you know, m rather it's more of a need to protect and take care of each other and the way Shuna words it is, let us go forth and treat each other as well as we can. Richard, neither Richard nor I wanted to put forth any superhero-like aspirations of, we are going to clean up this world. We're going to clean up this planet and things are going to run perfectly and, you know, God and country and apple pie. You know, we did, we did not want to go anywhere near that. We wanted to go near what was realistic, which is let's go forward and just treat each other as well as we can. It's it's an aspiration that anybody can live up to if they choose. And even though you, oh, you of little faith, pronounced that we would not give you a hint, a clue, a crumb... <laughs> I'm going to do just that. Wendy and I both just simultaneously <laughs> gasped. <laughs> so your your reputation precedes you. Well, I know what he's told me not to say, and so he's got. All right, let, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Okay. This is the end of the podcast, so okay. it better be good. <laughs> uh, I I think I can uh, I can uh, thread this needle. Your question was, in essence, how we feel about the relationship between the elves and the humans of the world of two moons. 
And the last page of Final Quest was a through-the-mirror-brightly reflection of the first page. But the world is the world, and people are people, and elves are elves. And as we know all too well from the times we are living in right now, things that appear to be solved sometimes aren't solved, or things that appear to be progressing sometimes regress. And one of the things that I'm pretty sure that we want to do in the stories that follow Final Quest is look at that in a both realistic yet fantastic context. I'm stroking my beard and thinking quizzically about what that could be. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm mentally translating this and, and oh, you dancer. <laughs> well, I was just going to oh, say, you, you just told us a whole bunch of stuff, yeah. but you, you didn't tell us anything. That, so he certainly so, so you still got it, Richard. <laughs> I, my work here is done. Well, on that note, thank you guys for taking the time to have this lengthy conversation. I always go into these thinking, oh, we'll do it in an hour. I think we're closer to two hours now, but I, I appreciate the time. Um, and again, on behalf of all ElfQuest fans out there, thank you guys for the last 40 years. And we thank you for giving us the opportunity to explore more years with you. Uh, sign me up. that <laughs> again. <laughs> all right. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. We love you. Well, that's it for another episode of the ElfQuest Show podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate it and leave a review on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen. It really helps get more exposure for ElfQuest. Join the discussion about this episode and all things ElfQuest on Facebook in the ElfQuest fan group. You can also follow ElfQuest the official page there. And on Twitter, follow at ElfQuest and Instagram, follow at ElfQuestComics. Head to ElfQuest.com for links to all of these social media groups and to read free online comics. Get official ElfQuest merchandise, read hundreds of character bios, make your own cool ElfQuest avatar, and tons of other amazing ElfQuest stuff. ElfQuest is published by Dark Horse Comics in both print and digital editions. Visit your local comic shop or bookstore and ask for ElfQuest. Or head to digital.darkhorse.com or comicsology.com for instant downloads. Until next time, shade and sweet water. <laughs>